Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Happy Reformation Sunday. Amen. And I know we have many families that are out sick this week. We hope that they are well and returning to us soon. We thank, of course, Brady and Diana for blessing us in worship. We were blessed as, we, as well last week to welcome Cam and Abby Nally into membership at Harrison Hills. Christ is faithful to his bride, the church. Of course, we are thankful not only for numerical growth, but yet our cry, our desperation, is for growth of maturity and depth in our Christian walk. And God has promised the provision and the capacity to grow in sanctification. He's promised the strength to press forward when every force in the world seems to battle for your affection and desire. When every force of discouragement would seek to dissuade you from running the race of faith, he stands with open arms and open hands, giving to all who would ask of him. Isaiah proclaims, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Such is our promise as we gather as the people of God this morning, here to encounter the living word that will renew our mind, that will change our hearts, and that will capture our affections. Amen? Amen. Last week, we continued in our series titled, A Tree Lies, A Temple Dies. Here we remain in Tuesday on the timeline of Passion Week having first witnessed the cursing of the fig tree, and we witnessed in that fig tree a living parable testifying to the state of worship in Israel. Just as the fig tree would need to be destroyed, so must the temple, which had become worthless and fruitless in its worship. Though it flouted its leaves, telling the world that there was fruit to be found within its branches, it was a lying tree. It promised that which it did not have. It professed that which was false. It, protests, it professed fruit on the outside, but a close inspection showed a different story. And this is not an isolated phenomenon of the temple. It pervaded all religiosity of Israel, particularly amongst the leadership. Of course, from the very beginning, Jesus blasted the state of worship in Israel and the leaders of that worship saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You are nothing but leaves, no fruit, and yet you draw in the unsuspecting masses with your display of leaves, attracted to the promises only to be left starving and malnourished. There was nothing of value. There was nothing of nutrition to be had. 
In its barrenness, our Lord Jesus makes a profession on the state of false worship. That it not only never will bear fruit, but it must be destroyed. It must be cut down. And that means, as we will see later in Mark 13 for the temple, that no stone will be left upon another. Despite its opulence and beauty, plated in gold, inside the temple were dead men's bones. And thus we did a bit of a deep dive last week, not only into the history of the temple, but the geography and the architecture of what, as well. While many may not be familiar with that history, we cannot understand the state of temple worship in our text today if we do not understand the history. One can track the very rise and fall of the entire nation of Israel by the rise and fall of the temple. The history of the temple, as we, as we saw, paints a painful picture of the cyclical state of worship in Israel. Throughout history, the temple is a continual outward manifestation of the inward condition of the heart of Israel. Our worship is a manifestation of our heart. Whether it be idolatry, a God replacement, or a worship of the one true and living God, it reveals the heart. Worship reveals the heart. All people, all places, all times. And we are reminded that we are all worshipers. The only question to be answered is what is the object of that worship? We know that the very worship is this, that worship is the single most defining attribute of a nation. All the way from our national worship of, in America, whether it be our worship of sports, of material wealth, of celebrity, down to the worship in our own homes. Worship defines a nation and a family. Of course, the immediate problem with worshiping our God replacements is that those gods will always let you down. They never deliver what they promise. This idol promised me happiness, and it failed. That job, that house, that car, that person promised me happiness, and they all failed. That's why the world is such an angry place. If we want to boil the anger of the world down to one sentence, it is this. People's gods keep failing them. The idol overpromised and underdelivered every time. And each time they grow more angry and more disillusioned. But instead of turning to the true God that is the only one worthy to receive it, the one who keeps his promises... They move on to the next thing and the next thing. Which idol will deliver? And none ever do. And there we are. And by the time you're 80 years old, you've been promised and let down so many times, it can leave one quite bitter. And this is why the issue of worship, of false worship, creates the very bookends of Jesus' ministry. He began his ministry back in John chapter 2, driving the crooks out of the temple with a whip. And here Jesus will sunset his earthly ministry doing the very same thing. Now our text for this series revealed a system that had taken hold in the temple that was utterly corrupt, known as the Bazaar of Annas in the outer court of the Gentiles. This marketplace is where our scene is taking place. 
It's where our scene is taking place. And this, this marketplace in the outer courts of the Gentiles was owned lock, stock, and barrel by the high priest of that very name, Annas. It was a foul system whereby inspecting priests would decline the offerings brought by the pilgrims as not being acceptable or pure. But we offer pre-approved animals inside the walls for exorbitant fees. And the money changers were there as well as we saw to pray on those who were bringing in foreign currency to pay their temple tax. No one was exempt from this extortion, even the poorest, who according to Leviticus could bring a minimum sacrifice of doves. Even they would be scalped $5 in the temple for what would cost five cents outside the walls. Praying upon the most vulnerable in society, the opposite of what should be named amongst worshipers of Yahweh. And we left off last week in verse 16, seeing that people had even made a habit of cutting through the temple, making it a thoroughfare between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, and vice versa, treating the holy as common and profane. The sacred had been made secular, the sanctuary had been turned into a shortcut. And we labor in the details of the temple corruption. Why? That we might grasp the righteous fury of Christ. This is not a scene often taught from many pulpits. Or if it is, it's twisted to show Jesus in engaging in some sort of social justice crusade. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. We are told why Jesus did this. The very first time he did it, recorded in John 2.17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Pulling directly from Psalm 69, he is passionate about his father's house. He cares what is happening in places that name his name and purport to worship him. And he will zealously inspect those who have the fig leaves of faith waving in the wind. Is there fruit? Zeal for your house will consume me. And as we mentioned in part two of our series, we have yet to truly explain what this zeal manifested as. Yes, we know that Jesus drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. But without context, we fail to actually capture the zeal that was present here. Hollywood shows these scenes almost laughably. This little market, maybe 10 stalls that Jesus goes and drives out. We'll try again, Hollywood. The court of the Gentiles, we need to visualize this was the size of 10 football fields. A football field is 1.32 acres. The court of the Gentiles, 13 acres. Jesus did not clear 10 stalls. He cleared 13 acres. 10 football fields worth of merchants and animals. Hold the phone. And this is at the height of Passover. There are thousands of people in here. This is so spectacular in scope and in strength. Some wonder if this wasn't something of a miracle in itself. The sheer stamina to drive out thousands of people. Try driving off one acre of people. 
whose livelihood depends on them being there. They make their whole year in this one week. Now do it 13 more times. It's incredible. People will often daydream what, what biblical scenes they would visit if they could go back in time. The one for me would be right here. You can't imagine it. The animals would have been running everywhere. And I mean everywhere. Josephus himself wrote that 260,000 lambs were sacrificed that Passover. People running, animals spooked and scattered. Ten football fields worth of complete chaos. Zeal for your house will consume me. We cannot move past this point without turning the mirror inward. Let us be reminded, beloved, that God saved you for one purpose. To turn you into the image of his son. You are a gift from the father to the son. And that process known as sanctification, by which we are daily transformed into the image of his son, is to make you more like Jesus every day. And what is a trait of the son? Zeal for the father's house. He cares about and he loves his body. The older a saint becomes in their faith, the more they should care about his church. The more they should care about fidelity and worship. The more they should care about correct theology and doctrine being preached. The more they should desire to see God worshipped in spirit and in truth. Jesus was zealous for his father's house. As you grow in Christ, as you are daily transformed into the image of Christ, so should your zeal grow as well. Time is short for Jesus in this scene. And what does he care about? Truth and worship. Zeal for the house of God. If you are a seasoned saint, perhaps with more years behind you than ahead of you, be zealous for the house of the Lord. You should be the most zealous. There is no sunset. You will carry this zeal all the way. Today we continue this incredible scene after the crooks have been driven out, acres of them, in the midst of probably one of the most dusty, smelly courtyards you could imagine. Everything imaginable turned up in the air, literally. Crates, tables, chairs strewn everywhere. We're going to see what happens when the dust settles. So with that, beloved, let's look at our text. Mark 11, 17 through 21. It's Mark 11, 17 through 21. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they were going out of the city, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the word we hold in our hands this morning as a humble people. 
as a dependent and desperate people that need your Holy Spirit to guide us in your word. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, as we turn the mirror inward, as we look at ourselves both individually and corporately in this text, oh, that you would cause the arrow to find its mark. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, if we have a prayer of getting through all five verses today, which you know for us is a lot, we're going to jump right into the text, beginning with verse 17 as the dust settles upon our scene. Watch this, beginning with verse 17. And he began to teach. Now, we really must stop there, mustn't we? We must behold the heart of our Savior. Do you see it? And he began to teach. Now, this seems like such a dichotomy, such a binary change from the Jesus we just saw. But it's no such thing. The first truth this reinforces is that, is that this was not a volatile anger in Jesus in the temple. Remember that our anger, our sinful anger, is not the anger of God. Jesus was the complete, Jesus was of the complete presence of mind to teach after this incident. Utterly in control and on mission for the Father. Jesus was both a preacher and a teacher. And yet we must see him rightly, not only as the gentle and lowly, one with children sat on his lap as the preacher and the teacher, but that he has righteous wrath, righteous anger, enough to drive out 10 acres of people, many of which would have been resisting him. While that is impressive, perhaps even miraculous, as we'll later examine, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His righteous anger has not been abated. Now, not only does Scripture say that he is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 711, but Revelation 6 declares, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. We neglect this Jesus at our peril. Our scene in the temple with Jesus first flipping tables and chairs, now only to turn and teach, is indeed the lion and the lamb. They're not at odds with one another. They are the same Lord. Back to our text. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written? What is Jesus' authority here? What does he appeal to as the justification for what he is saying? Scripture. The written word. He did the same against Satan in the wilderness. It is written. It is written. Oh, that we might be a people of simple words, if only to say it is written. Our challenge today is that so few know what is written. Jesus' appeal is to the authority of Scripture, because that is the authority. He is endued with all of the authority. The Word of God is authoritative over the lives of every person who ever lived, whether they acknowledge it or not. 
There would have been hustlers and crooks in this crowd listening to Jesus that couldn't care less what some dusty scroll from Isaiah said that Jesus is about to teach out of. doesn't matter. It is written. And whether we acknowledge it or not, or submit to it or not, does not change its authority. I can tell the judge that I don't believe in him, or acknowledge the authority of this court. doesn't really matter. Off to jail you go. Scripture is our authority to speak what we speak, to believe what we believe, to stand where we stand, even when the world is shouting you down. Even in a temple, in utter disarray, dust and stink everywhere, people yelling and screaming, you ruined my shop. It is written. It is written. What then is written? Look back to our text. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Jesus quoting from the prophet Isaiah here, 56 verse 7. Listen, beloved, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Beloved, we're reminded that a verse has but one meaning but wide-ranging application. And here it is truly vast. The meaning is the atmosphere of prayer and reverence is to define and pervade the house of the Lord, a place to become quiet before Him, to respond to the ministry of the Spirit as He does business with our hearts. Our application goes on a mile for us today there, doesn't it? Do we often think when coming to church, as coming to a house of prayer? I guarantee you we do not. In fact, we found that if you label something a prayer meeting, that is a surefire way to get people not to attend. And yet my house shall be called a house of prayer. All the other elements of church, of instrumental worship, of preaching, flow out of prayer. Might we allow ourselves to be reoriented in our minds and hearts there, beloved? Now look back to our text, a house of prayer for whom? For whom? For all the nations. Isn't that something? Jesus is clear time and again that he is going to save Gentiles. But you hate Gentiles. As my people, as my chosen people Israel, you have made this temple about your exclusivity. But that wall is coming down. I'm going to save your enemies. I'm going to save black and white, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Greek. I'm going to save men and women from all nations of the earth. And yet you have made this temple a shrine to yourselves for your own means but we are the sons of Abraham. Ah, yes. But Abraham trusted and believed. He had faith. You trust in works righteousness and your own laws of men. So in Christ Jesus, Paul tells the Galatians, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, having been clothed 
with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. My house is a house for all nations. Those that have built an entire system around, those that you have built an entire system around hating, I'm going to save them. The ironic thing is that the popular Jewish teaching of the day was that Messiah would clear the temple of Gentiles when he returned. Instead, he's clearing it out for the Gentiles. Being separate and called out from among them does not mean that we do not love them and serve them. We do. And God is saving the least likely every day. But what have they done with the temple here in our text? But you have made it a robber's den. Many of you are aware that tomorrow we celebrate Reformation Day. Right? October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther famously nailed 95 grievances against the Catholic Church, against that church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And one of those grievances was the ungodly act of selling indulgences. They were fleecing the flock. I wonder if Luther had this scene in his mind as his hammer swung against the door. You have made the church of the living God a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting, of course, the prophet Jeremiah 7 verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. And we notice here that Jesus does not use the word thief, kleptes, here. Correctly translated, he uses the word robber. A thief is someone who pilfers what is at hand, what's at hand. He looks for crimes of opportunity. A robber? That's a different word. Woost writes here of this word that, quote, a robber conducts his operation on a large systematic scale and with the aid of bands, close quote. Meaning a robber steals openly, a thief steals by stealth. This is out in the open, organized fleecing of the flock. Such a organized foretaste into the very actions that sparked in part a reformation. Corruption in the house of the Lord. The commercialization of religion. Whether it's a thousand percent markup on a pair of doves or two pence to stare at a relic of John the Baptist for 500 years off purgatory in Luther's day. It is the same spirit at work. But when Luther started speaking up, he drew notice, did he not? He drew the ire of those in power. He drew the deadly gaze of institutions that profited off fleecing the flock. Many wanted Luther dead. They made their living by selling relics. The Catholic Church supported by the selling of indulgences. Luther's very life was often in danger. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. Let us look to verse 18, beloved. Verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Oh, what treasures await us in this verse. Now, some of the more keen of eye may notice that this is the first time in the Gospels where we see the chief priests and the scribes mentioned 
together. United in cause and purpose. You threaten our power, and now you just cost us all a lot of money. You're not in Galilee anymore, Jesus. This is the Super Bowl. This is Passover in Jerusalem. And we are not some underling, country-bumpkin Pharisees to contend with. We're the Sanhedrin. We are the chief priests. We own this place. Many of you know the name Caiaphas. He was actually the half, he was actually the brother-in-law of Annas, the high priest. This was big, big family business. And we need to be reminded of this when we see Jesus hauled before the high priest after being arrested in only a few days. This is fresh in their minds. Jesus has exposed their hypocrisy and he's hit them in the checkbook. This is no longer a band of Pharisees that want him dead. Now we have the chief priests taking the helm. I want us to see the escalation. It is this escalation that is adding fuel to the fire of God the Father's divine timetable for the giving of Jesus Christ. All in perfect timing. And they were afraid of Jesus, weren't they? Look to our text. Not because of who Jesus claimed to be or his power, but why? Because of the reaction of the people. In fact, Luke's account of this says, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Jesus spoke the people's language. The vast majority of the people in Jerusalem for Passover were not fancy pants, scribal temple Jews. They were country folk. They were from all the surrounding areas. And did they know that they were being ripped off in the temple? You bet. Now they have someone bold enough to say it and to call it out, and show him from Scripture where it's wrong, and that your leaders are hypocrites and robbers. Now this could have turned into a torch and pitchfork scene really fast for them. And back then, a mob will stone you. Well, that brings us to such an amazing part of our scene. You know, so often there are miracles in Scripture that we see that are are not necessarily prefixed with, and Jesus did a miracle. It's just there. And a possible explanation is the miraculous. And here we have just such an event. Now, we alluded to it earlier, but it bears further examination. Now, we know that Jesus has caused quite a scene here that is truly spectacular. 13 acres, 10 football fields in size, thousands of people flipped, kicked, whipped out of there. Huge scene, dust and animals everywhere, noise, chaos, pandemonium. Nor would this have been a fast scene. This would not have happened quickly, given the size and the scope. So our question arises here in our text, as we see the chief priests and the scribes address Jesus, where's security in all of this? Where are the Romans? Where is the temple guard? We need to understand a bit of context to see the supernatural here. Now, if you can visualize the entire temple area, the north side of the wall, really of Jerusalem, was considered the most vulnerable part of the city. It was exposed to attack. Now, it also happens to be where the temple is. And as far as the Romans were concerned, that was the crescendo of the religious zealotry for the area. So given not only the military need, but the social and the religious and the political importance of the area, we're going to put a big old fortress 
right here, right up on the temple. You look at a picture of Herod's temple, you'll see it right there outside the temple wall. In 35 BC, Herod built the Antonia Fortress. It was named after his friend, Mark Antony. It stood over 115 feet tall. It garrisoned 600 Roman soldiers. This was where Roman governors would stay when they came to visit. This was basically Roman soldier HQ in Jerusalem. Now, you might know this fortress by another name. It was called the Praetorium. Does that ring a bell? Then Pilate entered the Praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. That's right here, so we understand the proximity. The fortress was put here mainly to keep an eye on the center of Jewish life on the most troublesome town in history. Even back to King Artaxerxes, Jerusalem was known as the most troublesome place on the planet. So they not only wanted their towers to be able to look down into the temple to see what was going on, but we know that Herod built underground tunnels into the temple complex that Roman detachments could get into if they needed to get into the temple to put down just such a scene. So where are they? This is high Passover time, peak population, most, like, most likely time for trouble, and beloved Roman soldiers don't sleep on duty. Jesus clears out 10 football fields worth of people, and the Romans are nowhere to be found. It's unexplainable. But given how Jesus' actions were used to divinely stir up the anger of those who would crucify Jesus, this may be providence that the Romans were held back. Or perhaps God used a political decision on the part of the Romans to stay back and not interfere. We don't know. However, we see the hand of God at work. Yet we must recognize the scope and the breadth of this action by Jesus, what it means, what it signifies, what it points to. To rebuke the temple is to rebuke the entire nation. It has been well said that a congregation can rise no higher than its pulpit. And the same principle holds true here, meaning if the temple is corrupt, if the temple is bereft of a living faith, if the temple does not truly worship God in spirit and in truth, what hope does Israel have? It is wholesale condemnation. I read one commentator that opined that this was not a clearing of the temple, it was a cursing of the temple. And while it's often overlooked because we, we so often see the, the Pharisees plotting against Jesus, you know, trying to trip him up and, and get him to say things, trying to trap him, it is here, this text, this action, where Jesus' death warrant was signed. This was it. You just shamed and exposed the most powerful people in Jerusalem. This is it. That seething hatred when Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin, what is the heartbeat behind that? What's in their minds? What's fresh in their minds to stoke this anger? It's this scene right here. It's so pivotal, we mustn't gloss over it. Behind the scenes, it's done. Jesus is a dead man. Find someone in his inner circle 
to betray him. And of course, Jesus used the power and the protection of the crowd to keep the divine timetable, keeping the chief priests from arresting Jesus right then and there. But beloved, there are deep truths to be gleaned from that. This crowd, it says in our text that they were astonished, doesn't it? They were astonished. This is a very strong Greek word. It means to strike out of one's senses, that they were shell-shocked, to be beside oneself at the teaching. Luke said they were hanging on to every word. What an, what an important distinction in principle that we see here, that people can hear tremendous teaching. They can be in awe at the teaching and the preaching. They can say, wow, and walk out of the doors completely unchanged. This crowd would call for Jesus' crucifixion. There's no indication here that many believed on the Lord Jesus because of his teaching. They were simply amazed. They were struck by his teaching. I like how Woost put it, quote, hearing truth can astonish you, but only believing truth can save you, close quote. I'll tell you that's encouraging for preachers. I can tell you that. We often think if we were more gifted in the pulpit, maybe more would come to Christ. If we preached better, maybe some would take hold of eternal life. There was never a better preacher than Christ. He left them spellbound, shocked, and amazed. And yet they were utterly unchanged in their hearts. It's almost a mistragedy in our text, that of the crowd. Yes, the state of the temple and the leadership is tragic to the core, and it will be cut down. But we mustn't miss the response of the crowd. Amazement, not repentance. An astonished heart, not a broken heart. Oh, to get so close to the Lord of glory that you can taste it, to hear his teaching, to be astonished and amazed, yet missing the king entirely. Were there individuals drawn and saved in this encounter? Encounter, perhaps. But so few that it's not recorded. It was not the prevailing outcome by any means. What a scene we leave behind. As we look forward here to verse 19, verse 19. And when evening came, they were going out of the city. Back to Bethany. They go. Back to Bethany. And what I wonder was the conversation heading back to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's that night. Well, we don't know any of that, but we do know what happened the following morning on the way back to Jerusalem. Now, day three of Passion Week, verses 20 and 21, I'll read them as one. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And being reminded... Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now, they likely would have passed by the fig tree that prior night, but they couldn't see it in the dusk or the dark. But now in the light of day, they see the tree. They now see the reality of the tree. They see it as it actually is. It was already dead inside when it flouted its leaves promising fruit. It was already dead. You just couldn't see it. 
Jesus has exposed the tree. He has exposed the temple for what it really is. It's rotten. It's dead on the inside. It's full of dead men's bones. Now, many Bibles title this the cleansing of the temple, don't they? But that's a mislabeling in many opinions. Jesus cursed the temple just as he cursed the tree. In only a short time, 70 A.D., all would come to pass. The temple will be cut down and destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. And yet this points directly to us today. This is living history. John 15, 6 exhorts us. Jesus exhorts us in John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. All the outward trimmings of religiosity, being in the pew every Sunday, being baptized, taking of the Lord's Supper, singing yes and amen, beautiful leaves waving to passers-by. But the great truth of this is that the outward trimmings of religiosity, having the leaves only added to the condemnation of both the tree and the temple. It only added to the condemnation. Peter writes in his second epistle, it would be better, it would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. If you are not bearing fruit, your outward leaves only add to your downfall and condemnation. It would have been better for you to stay there withered along the side of the road than to wave your leaves deceiving yourself and deceiving others who come looking that they might receive and eat of the promises. A tree has lied and a temple has died. Neither were what they claimed to be. Both left their people dejected and malnourished. Both will be burned down. Say, boy, brother, this is a lot of bad news you're bringing us here. If it be bad, then let it be bad. Let it sober the sleeping, the slothful and the sinner. Heaven and hell hang in the balance for one that would wave their leaves with no fruit. If this is you, I pray you not have a moment's rest until you cry out to be dug up by your dead roots and made alive in Christ. That you would call out in repentance and faith and then you will live life by the giver of life, bearing fruit, forsaking false worship, running from hypocrisy, throwing yourself on the lover of your soul you might find safety and rest. Do it today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we have encountered the word today that we do not read, but Lord, that reads us. Lord, as we look 
in this mirror as we reflect. Lord, many of us have leaves in our life on branches where there be no fruit. Lord, and we pray today for that we might know what is the length and height and depth and breadth of the love of Christ that has come, that is a lover of our soul, that desires to sit down and sup with us. Heavenly Father, as we consider this text, as we continue our march down Passion Week, as we consider the living parable of the fig tree and the cursing of the temple, Lord, we pray that we might apply it to our lives, corporately and individually, Lord, that we might be found faithful in that day. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.